Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You'll also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. We are talking to Kripa Natarajan, who is a product management executive working across Informatica, IBM, Paxata, and Data Robot. She talks about her journey where she starts with fervor and curiosity, and that has blended into answering the what if from a customer perspective from, for their ecosystem and answering the right product and market fit. Listen on. Hi, Kripa. Good morning. I'm so happy to have you as a guest in our podcast. Hi, Karitri. Really excited to be here. I've listened to many of your podcasts and gained a lot of insights from the conversation. So really excited to be part of it today. Thank you so much. And it's also nice to see you staying so late being in Bay Area. Quite frankly, it's a good relief escape for me from my kids. I'm enjoying this. All right. How was your passion for technology got started? What was your earliest memory? Sure. My earliest memory of a computer was a hand-me-down DOS, Windows DOS machine that I think my dad brought home from his company, like his workplace, because they were getting rid of old computers and they didn't have a place to take it to. And he brought it home. This was when I was in my ninth or 10th grade. And I got around to installing a database on it and writing a command line program that will help you enter expense and income. So I was all sat through like three weeks of writing that program just to get some insert and update statements into a database, self-teaching, and then a whole list of like commands to do it. And I was so excited that my parents are going to now start managing their finances on this little software, which they never did. They didn't learn a single command from the DOS OS. But that was my first memory. But after that, just the regular old, go through our, back in India, you go through your 11th and 12th grade, and you're put on this path where you need to just focus on scoring as much as you can to get into your dream college, which uh, happened to be at that time, REC Trichy, now uh, National Institute of Technology. And I did get in. And at that point in time, computers were a fad, right? Like everybody, it was a newer field, relatively speaking. We all had people around us that were in other fields of engineering, but not many people around us that were in computer science. It was novelty. It was new. And with that came the curiosity, right? Something new, so I want to try it. Not really understanding and comprehending what I was getting myself into. It was just a course that we took up and then went through in the college days. I would even say that even going through the entire engineering course, it really didn't dawn on me in terms of what technology field was and what really, where we were headed and, and so on. But there was a curiosity and there was that forward to learn. Um, I remember back then, internships were not common. Like not many college students were seeking internships as a system. And even companies were not very systematic about offering internships to students. But we used to go and get internships every every semester break. And this is a story that you would relate to because you and I went uh, to IIT Madras because we read about this professor who was world renowned. And we just showed up at his office with that curiosity to want an internship. 
And we were so adamant, like that childlike, uh, almost like a childish adamant in, in terms of going and saying, oh, I, I need an internship. And he used to get very annoyed. He used to say, I don't have enough internships for my, my own students. And you guys are showing up from somewhere else. We didn't give up. Like, we used to show up every day until he got tired. And he said, I'm going to give you a pop quiz. And if you do well, you get the internship. And we did, right? So we had that drive, the curiosity and that fervor to learn, but really didn't comprehend what the technology field was back then. That's how the journey started. And then I landed in uh, Wipro Technologies from campus placement, took up a job. The first two years was more like just earning and spending and having fun and, and all that stuff. And slowly my career really started turning. I landed in the Silicon Valley area in 2001, which was possibly the worst time to land here. This was just a big recession in, in the 2001 time period. The dot-com burst, there was literally no jobs that's when I would say some of the seriousness started settling in, right? It wasn't as easy. It wasn't, you needed to really understand the industry. There was competition around, you needed to open your eyes and see where you wanted to go. It was a rough period in 2001. There were layoffs every day. We would hear about layoffs everywhere. There was no traffic on the freeways. It, it was very eerie kind of situation. And, and again, with that same forward to just persist, you know, landed up in a number of different roles uh, and then got a foothold into a development organization. And there began my true journey of learning and understanding. So I started in, as a developer in my career and I started getting curious about why are we developing this software? Who's using it? What are they using it for? Why do we need to do it this way? And that journey took me into product management and, and then it's it's been a very, very fulfilling journey. We often keep talking about product manager as a field and then there's a program manager or a project manager, right? How do you really distinguish and were you, when did you start distinguishing that in your career? That's a great question. Actually, when we look at the whole software industry, there are a few really industries in it, right? Now, there, there are product companies. These are the vendors that are building products and selling them either to consumers like your iPhones and stuff or to enterprises. Like they, these are the software that enterprise companies use to run their systems and so on. And then there are the services organizations and of course the IT arms of large companies and the large internet companies. In services organizations, typically there is a, a, a more prominent program management role because you're trying to coordinate the environments from a from a customer and get that executed in a timely fashion and deliver the expectations. In product organizations, the pivotal role really lies with product manager. So on a day-to-day -day basis, product management function is responsible for identifying really what is it that the market is craving for? What is the market need? What is the need and the niche that we're trying to fulfill? And then develop that into a product vision and strategy and translate that into the engineering arm so you can actually build the product out and position it back into the market, working with product marketing and even sales organization to go back and position what the value of the product is and to push that forward. So uh, the Interesting thing to me about the role in product management is you literally are the CEO of the feature or the product or whatever portfolio that you're owning. And you need to be aware of what's out there in the market, what te technology enablers are coming in, into bear and really push the, the efforts of the engineering organization in the right direction. So there's value being delivered at the end of the day. One example that I often think about is, of course, there's the classic thing that uh, Henry Ford said. Right, like when you go to a customer, no customer came in and asked for a car, right? They w wanted a faster horse, but then someone identified that a faster horse is going to get them further and faster. So why not 
satisfy that need with cars and, and look where we are we are after that same thing like we used to have back in those days 20 years ago i remember walking into stores like and and picking out movies to rent bringing them home and then watching them and then forgetting to return them on monday morning and paying like huge fines and so on at that point in time someone was keeping an eye on the technology advancements that was making it possible to stream videos directly into people's homes right so it was not a field that was directly related to movie rentals but it was an enabler that enabled that field to be completely disrupted and have streaming video come in so a true product innovator is looking at all of those enablers and identifying what is that crux of the problem you're solving and trying to put that into a plan not just in as a dream but into a plan and execute and deliver on nicely put kripa what you're saying is the perseverance that you got started that and curiosity to get started that these are two ingredients that you can put that into product management to see yes. what not what just not just what all are available but also what, what is possible and yes. uh, and those unsaid rules and principles very very well put can you give us some examples of some of the product management innovations or tech enablers that you said you spoke about netflix in your experience any examples absolutely i'll talk to the products a little bit that i have built out over the last decade and then also we can actually let me take a step back into we're all living through a pandemic right now uh, the covid situation is yes there is a this people are suffering and all of that but we've also as humans adapted to a newer form of living now we're working remotely our kids are attending school remotely we're meeting family over zoom meetings who whoever thought that would happen and so, but if you think about it a slightly different way what if covid-19 had happened 15 years ago when internet was not this prevalent that some schools in certain remote places across the world did not have the ability to as easily yes there are people even today that don't have those facilities we often take for granted but majority of the world is at a place where yes we can switch to re- working remotely yes video conferencing with 10 team members over zoom while your child from another room is taking attending classes in school and your your significant other is taking another zoom call from another room it's all possible now because we have matured to a point where we have the right bandwidth the right in- infrastructure and even most of us in software organizations everything is running on the cloud we're not going into server rooms and so on so we're at a place now that interestingly when covid happened we we have enough technology for us to have been able to quickly adapt change our ways and and do this what would have happened if this had not happened now but 15 years ago 20 years ago how would the world have reacted right and and then move that forward like what would we envision if this happens 20 years later like would we still rely on these same technologies or would we envision a much better world right something that is even more easier for us to consume this work relationship or uh, schools or even delivery like we we click a button and grocery gets delivered we're, we're able to do it today in 2020 that's great because covid didn't happen in 2000 and so we can do this today but how much better can it be if this happened we don't want to deal with another pandemic but how technology enable us to be even better if this happened like 15 years from now those kinds of questions and those kinds of really fundamentally changing and and thinking of what would be the enablers that would help us adapt are kind of the basis from which these products are born or they really built out of right you envision a consumer 
their life and whether that is a end user, like someone that's wearing a Fitbit uh, and when are they using it? Why are they using it? Do they go to sleep with it? Is it comfortable enough for them to go to sleep in it? How many people, is it? all of that, but also in the corporate world and, and most of my career has been in building enterprise software where the consumer is not, you know, in a corporate situation. So is my product changing their day enough or their life enough in a way that they did something that they couldn't do without it and they got their next promotion or they were able to up-level their top line or really cut back on their bottom line and, and stuff like that. So those questions, when we start asking them and then envision who they are, this person that we're building the product for, envision not only what they need out of our product, but the rest of their life. Two, like two or three years ago, I think I was on a business trip and I was taking a one of these ride-sharing app services and I was listening to the radio or something and an ad came on and one of these ride-sharing companies had an ad on where they were targeting the drivers to be regular moms, right? Like you drop your child in, in, at school and then you have your car, you you can do a few rides and make some money on the side. And so they were speaking to this an audience where they said, oh, if you're, if you're a mom, but you could earn a few bucks on the side, which is very appealing because you have a large market to appeal to. And then I got on the ride sharing and into the car and I was chatting with the driver and I asked them, do you get to know where you're going before I get in, into the car? I as a customer get into the car and they said, no, until the customer gets in, we don't know what the destination is. I accept the ride and only then I know what the destination of the ride is. And that got me thinking and, and I, they may have changed features then this, but it got me thinking because if, if the driver doesn't know where they're headed and how long the ride is going to take, and if you are appealing to this audience of moms, they need to be back at a certain time to pick that child back right it doesn't add up like what the thing is promising to do and how the features are and as a product manager to me it was like okay you don't have a feature to know or set that you only want rides within 30 minutes or within a 15 mile radius and then I just heard this ad that appealed to moms how does this add up right so you need to fit your product into the rest of their life they don't do interact with each product in isolation they have rest of life so again going back to your question typically when products are envision and build, you want to get to the crux of the problem that you're trying to solve. You want to be able to look at that problem from a bigger picture, like who is it going to and what is their life outside of this product? So, and how does it fit? And if it doesn't fit in, you don't have a fit. You just will not be able to be successful. And asking the right questions to be able to lead up to that, that's kind of where product manager really starts and should should need to keep up. And it's not a one-time thing. Like every step of the way, you keep asking that question over and over again and build the product to, to those capabilities. So normally, the examples that you're saying, it's very fantastic, right? What happens 20 years later? And further, if I have a B2C, if my business is catering to direct consumers, I may have some idea of what they are doing. The whole thing becomes a lot more harder when my target is an enterprise. And the enterprise also has different types of users, not just from a technology perspective, but also their daily life may be different. Their geographical location may be different. Culture may be different. And of course, the language and all the other complexities, right? That is lot more complex when in multiple dimensions 
So how do you manage that? That's a great question again, Gaitri. So typically when you're looking into selling or building an enterprise software, you actually have a end user, someone that's going to interact with your software. For example, if you were building Excel or Gmail, you have an end user that's interacting with it. You also have evaluators that may or may not be these end users, right? Like you have your IT architects and the, these people that are evaluating different software and they're looking for slightly different criteria. They're looking, I've chosen a particular cloud. So does this run on that cloud? Like I have a corporate agreement to run on one of the three big clouds and does this run on that cloud and does it scale up? Does it cut off? What is my cost of operation? So they're asking a slightly different set of questions. And then it, it's a joke, but actually it's also true. But as you roll up the chain, at some level, the only question that that person at the high level is asking is, is this either increasing my revenue or is it cutting cost? No other question as it goes up, right? Like, is it cutting my cost or is it increasing my, especially in these times, is it cutting my cost is going to be one of the questions, right? They don't care for what you're offering. It actually has to add up to it. If you take cloud move in, movement initiatives, primary reason people are moving to the cloud is to cut costs, whether it, it is in, in terms of resources or people that are supporting. So you chunk it into those, right? Like who is going to be your sponsor, they're looking at cost savings and so who's going to be your evaluator and who's going to be your actual end use. Now, when it comes to the actual, and, and you will need to appeal to all three, especially upfront in the sales cycle. One of the things that in recent times, the very healthy shift in the software business has been into subscription, right? Most software is not sold perpetually these days. It's a thing of the past. So in, when you're selling perpetual software, you sell it once, they are investing heavily upfront to buy the license as well as set up the infrastructure and get by the servers and set up the networking and set up the high availability and disaster recovery and everything. All that has been removed now. Like you're going selling mostly cloud software and it's subscription. But what subscription forces you to do is you cannot just sell the value upfront once and then let go because you will not get the renewal. If it's not being used, you will not get the renewal. If it's not being used, you have the data immediately available and the first thing that will be shelled because it's very easy to turn off a subscription-based cloud software. Customer's going to turn off. So it's forced this discipline that you have to have a continuous cycle of value that you're delivering at all these levels, whether that's it's the user that's consuming or it's the, the sponsor that was saying about their cost or their revenue uptake. So that's kind of the unique part of what enterprise software because in most end-user software, and I'm, I'm broadly generalizing, of course, there are, there are exceptions there, you are selling to the same person that is evaluating. Someone wants to buy an iPhone, they want, they're going to be the user of it, right? But here you have a chain, you have different agendas, you have different evaluators, and you will need to appeal to all of them. At the end of the day, you also need to understand the ecosystem in which that the enterprise software that you're selling is, is fitting in, right? The most of my last decade of my career has been in the data and analytics space, and I've had the privilege of leading two products that each have been recognized as visionaries by Gartner and Forrester. In all of those scenarios, when you're putting, let's say, an analytics software in, in place, or you're putting a, a data architecture in place, you're not isolated, have to fit into the rest of what the customer has. Like they have a particular place from which they're bringing data. They have certain volumes. They have certain end systems that are processing. You have to fit that ecosystem. So understanding that broader ecosystem, understanding how your product fits in seamlessly, because you don't want them to have the overhead of maintaining this as a separate thing and understanding this user in terms of ultimately whoever is using because if they use as long as they're using consumption-based subscription business will keep running right? and the minute the user stops using you'll be the first one to be cut off so delivering that value for the user in terms of understanding what is it that they're trying to do and the trend over the last many years which has been very encouraging is that 
it used to be that enterprise software was sold to a user that was expected to be technical. So you built a database, you're expecting a database administrator to be certified, to understand SQL, to write SQL queries. So they are trained and they have some higher level skill set. But over time, enterprise software has moved more towards the business user. So you want to give the same capability of being able to find some data to a business user who's looking for it without them knowing to SQL statements or write a query or anything like that. So a lot of those intelligence has to be built into the software that you're delivering. So the skill set of the user need not be very technical. They can focus on their business problem. So these are how you would look at the trend and the shift and move more towards appealing to this business user. Like, for example, if I'm a sales engineer and I want to know what my forecast is, I shouldn't be writing a SQL query. I should be able to go in and write a Google type query and get that answer. Earlier, it used to be that I have to walk over to my IT business analyst, tell them, hey, I want that forecast for this region in this month. And they would write a query. They will do it. They will give me back. And if I want to change it, I walk back to them. All that, like, remember the days of getting an IT ticket and service request and all that stuff. So again, back to your question, it's really about understanding that need of the user, the need of the evaluator, the need of the sponsor. You need to satisfy all of those agendas and making sure that the user is successful, especially in this age where it's consumption-based subscription. The minute you are not used, you you are throw away uh, software. And it's very easy to replace these days as well. Right? So understanding what that value added. And from a product management perspective, that means having constant communication with the customer. So you're not there to just sell and then walk away and then forget and move on. You have to understand and document the use cases where that customer is using. You have to bring your insights in. You should help them find other use cases for your product so they get more use out of it. So you are there every step of the journey and establishing that relationship and keenly listening to what's working for them versus not and then incorporating that. You're also saying very clearly, right? There are three levels of users of the enterprise space and using data as a product manager to say, okay, when are they using it? When, when am I, when, when is my usage picking up or dropping? I use that as my, for my future QMetics and uh, features to guide me. It is also very surprising, right? Earlier, if you build a software and if it is not working, uh, my, uh, it, will appear, it will stay in my data center for a very long time. But right now, the, the, using the fail fast scenario, it quickly can fail. And you say, okay, that's completely changed the paradigm of product managers. And that puts lot more pressure on you as a person, right? How do you handle that? It's actually good and bad because yes, you're under that constant pressure because if you're not being used, you're, it's very easy to replace. And cloud has enabled that too, right? Like earlier when you buy software, you're buying servers for it. And I, I remember those days when we used to do like yearly budgeting, like how many, what am I going to buy? What products am I going to run? How many servers do I need? How many servers do I need for peak load? Right. And you used to invest heavily upfront in getting those servers, getting your data center ready. So it was not easy to switch. Like you can't swap it out. But now you the elasticity in the cloud, you don't need to pay upfront for capacity that you're not using. And you're doing subscription. It's easy to swap things out. And, and also the, the overall mentality is I don't want one monolithic thing doing my end-to-end process. I want to do best of breed of each of the capabilities and then put them together. And it's easy to do that through API integrations and 
software talking to each other and process automation. And so, so yes, it is very easy to replace and it's very easy to see value. You have the data points right there. You have the analytics right there, which actually puts, to your point, you rightly put it, there is a pressure on product, but that's a very healthy pressure, right? It's a very, very healthy pressure to make sure that you are actually building value and delivering value. The flip side of it is it's also almost like a product manager's dream, right? Like earlier when we used to shift software away and then we had one version and then we would have a newer version, we may have fixed some bugs in that, but you literally have to beg your customers to upgrade to the new version because they have their priorities. They don't have time to upgrade your software and migrate things. But now everybody's in the latest, greatest version on the cloud and you don't need to worry about backward compatibilities in, in many cases unless you have an API infrastructure, but largely generalizing. You're not worrying about like supporting software software versions from five years ago, which, which is liberating because then your focus is on innovation and features and capabilities rather than maintenance and support and like the whole baggage that comes with it. And also the fact that you have that data in terms of the usage of the customers, it's very eye-opening because you could quickly see what is not working, eliminate that, focus on whatever is working and improve it. It also gives the product management organization, even product development organization, the somewhat of a leeway to be a little bit like less risk hours, right? Like if I'm shipping software and I have to design a UI, once I've shipped it and until the customer upgrades to my newer version, if I want to fix something or change some interaction, I literally cannot do it. I'm dependent on the customer. I have to go to 50 different customers and beg them to upgrade. But now I can do A-B testing very quickly in the cloud, right? And it gives you the ability as a product development organization to be not too risk averse. Like if you want to drastically change a UI, go ahead and put it in there. You will know from the clicks and your customers complaining whether it's working or not. And if it's not working, just revert back, right? Like it gives you a little bit of flexibility as well. So there's a lot of good aspects. Uh, you, you know what's being used. You are in latest, greatest version, less baggage from old software versions. And it actually helps you be a little bit more aggressive about pushing changes and seeing if they work. And if they don't work, okay, just roll everybody back into whatever works. Um, so it, I think it, it's very liberating in that sense for product development as well. Very nicely put. I always have been thinking from a technology angle, I don't have to do maintenance and stuff, but from a product management, right? It's very liberating. I don't have to think five years earlier and how, how difficult it is but to ensure that all your backward compatibility and more mm -hmm. importantly, the experimental. If I experiment, I only change only so much and I get data. I don't have to think big. I think small, experiment and, mm -hmm. and move on. I think that's a fantastic way of looking at our new digital platform when you have this right and not only the creative freedom from a product manager it is also the team that is developing it is a team sport right how do you communicate your vision sometimes urgency sometimes the aggressiveness that in your vision how do you really communicate to the team so that it gets translated to the outcomes absolutely for any product manager that you need a very strong partnership with the engineering team, right? It, nothing happens without that partnership. Even though many product managers in the industry come from themselves having been in engineering. And again, that's a double-edged sword. I had to unlearn certain things when I moved into product management. For example, coming from a development background, you think about the solutioning upfront, right? As soon as someone says something, it's like, oh, I can put that in a table and maybe put a query and you're thinking through solution, which is actually not what you're supposed to do because then you are 
are actually constraining the innovation, constraining the people may have better ideas and so on. So there's unlearning to do for many product managers like myself who shift from engineering and product development. But there is a very strong partnership to be established. Right? The product manager's responsibility is to clearly communicate what the pain point of the customer is and what their challenge is and to not go to the engineering organization and say, hey, I have a solution, can you implement it? That is, in my opinion, the worst thing that a product manager can do because you, if you're not allowing the engineering organization to really understand the crux of the problem and come up with innovative solutions themselves, you're really curbing in innovation. You're really shooting the product down at that point in time. So your job as a product manager is to understand the problem more than what is being said by the customer, like really having that comprehension of everything around them, like we talked about earlier. It's not just about, hey, can I drive the car? It's also about what responsibilities do I have outside? What, what features will help me cater to those responsibilities? Really comprehending that and communicating that as much as possible to the engineering organization. In a given typical day, a product manager will go from like talking, being in a strategy meeting to going to a particular feature design session and just participating. And I, this is something that it's a really healthy practice for a product manager to participate in the design discussion and not as a contributor, but as a listener to say, okay, and as those designs are being discussed, asking the right questions, would that design scale because I'm anticipating like 100,000 users here, or would that design work with these other systems in the customer's typical ecosystem? They're going to be on certain clouds, so they're going to be a 24 by seven shop. So asking those right questions, partnering and making sure that there's a, a very viable design and it's not one time it's very iterative as product development happens like as a sprint goes on every sprint you're there to see the progress to like test it out and give feedback and it's it's truly a partnership and on the other side as well like you need to act, make sure that product marketing is able to position the, the differentiated features because sometimes those innovations are not actually highlighted back into the customer base so you want to make sure that's communicated and it's it's a partnership everywhere and then that, that's where the, the responsibility is very unique because you have the role of being responsible for it, but you don't actually do, you neither do development nor marketing nor sales, but you have the responsibility to make sure that all of that is, is fitting. You become almost like a fulcrum. It is also a very good role for women, right? Women actually play a fulcrum at home. Naturally, it's not something that somebody trusted enough. That yes. was like a fulcrum and you stay in the center of everything. It's very naturally that will fall as a woman leader. I'm very happy to say that you're saying everything while I'm not responsible for every little detail, but I, I need to ensure that everything happening yeah. at this I am so glad you brought that up. It's something that, again, many of us are very passionate about, right? Like more women leaders, especially in very technical product management or leadership roles or product strategy, strategy roles. Uh, again, uh, we can talk about how strategy is a very over-abused word, but re really that having that leadership. I, I would be very, very frank in saying that when I started in product management, there weren't as many, there weren't as many even women CEOs, women sales executives or women product leaders to look up to, right? And, but that's changed dramatically and it's changing very, very fast. I'm really, really proud of the generation that has been coming up after us. That's 
taking on, they don't see those differences and they just taking on all of these uh, challenges. And like you said, we're naturally good listeners. And again, I don't mean that men are not, but naturally over, over generations, we're trained to be good listeners. That's a very key essential part of being in a, a product vision role because you need to listen beyond what's being told to identify the crux of the problem. We're good multitaskers, right? And that's essential to a product management role. Like in a given day, you will go from a customer meeting to a exec meeting with on the vision and strategy to preparing a board uh, deck on the progress of the product to sitting down with an engineering team and discussing a particular feature into detail to sitting down with the user experience team and brainstorming and whiteboarding what that user experience design should look like. And you'll go and take another call with a strategic customer, right? So multitasking is absolutely one of the core capabilities of product management. These are things that we've trained ourselves as women to do. And it's it's very, very handy. And I'm seeing a lot of great product leaders from women leaders that are being mentors, they're being inspirations for the generation that's after us. So happy you brought that up because as an agile coach and evangelist, I also see very few women on the front, right? When I, when there's a team of 14 people, I'll be the only woman. I like, it sometimes takes, uh, you have to be that much taller, not in the physical sense, but in everything else sense to say, okay, are you being heard? So that your teams are getting the right visibility as well as your flavor of coaching, right? I think we bring a different, unique flavor and while I I don't want to call it as a diversity and and put it all under the rug, but every small movement brings Mm -hmm. that level of users are very different. So if you have multiple different users, are we catering to them? Absolutely. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. brought an amazing point up, right? I remember like this probably was 15 years ago, some even more than that. I was in early stage career. I was in engineering. I was part of this Women in Technology International organization. And I was part of a forum that was discussing and there was a, this really great mentor that was talking to some of us that were emerging leaders there. And she said something that was very, very small and subtle, but it actually, you know, if you think about it, is actually a, a much broader message. She said, when, if you're the only woman in a room and you're 15 other men and there's a discussion going on don't jump into being a note taker or someone that is taking taking down the next step because we've had a history of women being over many many decades being the organizing people or the person that takes notes and helps other people execute and when you jump into that role you get get seen as that person you you then are so engrossed in in organizing things that you're not actively participating in the brainstorming session. So she said, like, never jump in and volunteer to take notes in, in meetings. And I, I found that, like, you know, that's so subtle. Like, it's so subtle, but it has such a deep connotation to it. And actually, in many situations, I've thought back of that minute and said, yes, if I had been, not that you, know, you do need someone to take notes or someone to, like, capture everything. But at the same time, if that's just one person doing it, and if that happens to be branded as the woman in the room, then that woman is no longer seen as the active idea generator or the one that's really articulating. So subtle things like this are things we've picked up and hopefully those are no longer challenges for the next generation of women coming up. I think that is changing subtly, right? Simple things like when I say taller, she's, uh, I, I use this concept of using my hands a lot so that mm-hmm. I will appear you know, bigger than what I am already. You will see men automatically do it. It's not something that they are being taught or anything. So your actually presence is felt, quote unquote, right? Uh, particularly physical meetings, of course, now that with 
most of it is happening in video conferences whole dynamic is changing dramatically the world is now changing so much right so from a technology user who was using it now as a business user and how do you cater to a technology agnostic product be it at analytics or be it machine learning everything is becoming more and more technology agnostic and so that they can do a jump start with that in in view how do you think let's say 10 years 10 years later what are the technologies that are going to really propel i think the general trend definitely like again i don't want to jargonize this but truly having inbuilt ai in any product that you're that, that you're offering is going to be like almost table stakes right like uh, when you expect it in phones you expect it in everyday things that you interact with you expect it in your car you expect it in in all of these places you're going to expect it in the enterprise world as well we're actually living in it's been a very interesting times because in the last i would say decade or so let's Let's even take last six seven years the average consumer like a layman user in their real life have more technology at their fingertips than the ceo of a company it's so much easier for me to pick up my phone and say ask a question and get a ready-made answer than it is for a ceo to say like you know simple thing like where is my forecast really slunking so i can go focus on it a ceo cannot just pick up something and ask a question and get an answer back right you have to go through layers of people that are put spreadsheets still and things together to do it. So we're in this place where actually the corporate world does not have as much AI aided technology that we've gotten used to in our personal lives. And that's going to, that gap is going to get bridged very, very heavily. You know, we're talking about robotic process or automation. We're talking about AI in everything. And this doesn't have to be even simple machine learning that can help tasks that human would do. Like if someone's looking at a dashboard, they're still making decisions from that dashboard right they're looking at a chart and they're saying oh if this means that if i'm looking at where covid is going to spread the human is still interpreting that and making decisions over time i think those decisions would also get automated that intelligence would also go into enabling those decisions to being made it's been happening over the last decade it's very much been happening even in terms of the software that i've had the privilege of delivering there used to be a time where you have to go to someone technical to ask your questions and right now you a business user can use natural language to ask questions of the data and they do start getting those answers back so definitely the trend is going to be more inbuilt intelligence into the the software and the t- technology touch points that the user has so they have the ability to rely on more insights that are automatically created and then use their time and efficiency as a human to actually solve larger problems or to focus on the business area and not worry about fumbling with with data and technology and stuff like that definitely we're headed then we're seeing those trends very very clearly uh, seeing those trends both on the consumer side as well as on the enterprise i think that is very insightful right even today if you look at large programs while each team by itself they will know how correctly courses are they going but when we look at say 600 people program we don't have such functions or functionalities to say okay these three possibilities in terms of courses that are possible we don't have those 
right now, which is very, very, very true. You only get it with a lot of significant investment and effort. So you, yes, you can put a team together to build those dashboards out to commit, but you don't get it with like the ease with which you would in your phone ask the question and get it back. That right? you don't have that fluidity and the ease, and and that's something that we will shift towards, and we have to shift towards over over. I know we are off time, so I I have been enjoying this conversation from being a joining as a software engineer to a product engineer to a product manager and a product leader. I am loving this conversation. I, is there any takeaways that you want to share with listeners? Yeah, I wouldn't call this so much of a takeaway, but I do want to share like a personal story that had guided my career and I'm hoping that at least someone would benefit from that. When I graduated from my engineering and I was taking up my first job, my dad actually sat me down for a conversation. When I was growing up, we never sat down with parents for conversation. Never happened. Like they were busy and we were growing up. It's a different world, right? So it was very new, new for me that my dad would sit me down for a conversation. He's not a very vocal person so he doesn't talk much but he sat me down and he told me one thing that was very eye-opening for me at that time and still continues to be a guiding principle he told me that when you're stepping into the the world when you're starting to work uh, there will be expectations placed on you and if you deliver to those expectations and you do really well and meet those expectations you're going to fail and that my eyes widened and said why like i've grown up at up until that point where you're expected to do well in your test you do well you're expected to get into college you're expected to get a campus placement and you do that and you were considered okay right if you meet those expectations you're considered to be good you're a good student good good kid but then when he told me that if you, you there will be expectations if you meet those expectations you do well in those expectations you're going to fail you're, you're going to be left behind if you do above and beyond those expectations you go a step further and do better than what is being expected of you you will survive in this race you you will actually you will continue to float around and you survive the only way for you to succeed is to completely do something very much out of the box and think differently and innovate and think about those expectations think about what else can be expected of you and go achieve that right that's how you would really succeed like if, if you meet expectation you're failing if you go above and beyond expectation you're going to survive and if you really push that envelope and really push yourself out and broaden that thinking and go beyond what is expected expected in a completely different way then you're going to emerge a successful person i've used that as a guide and it meant something then it definitely meant something more profound over the years as i matured as well right like and i'm pretty sure that that learning process will continue and every every five years or ten years that same thing means something different to me but it's always been a guiding principle whether it's the products that you're building whether it's services that you're offering to customers uh, as a software organization or as an individual that's building your own career and identity. I think thinking differently and really not being satisfied with just doing marginally better than what is expected of you is definitely a great way of facing each challenge and emerging from it and certainly has helped me. And I just wanted to park that because it, it's been a personal thing that has guided me in my career and I'm hoping that it can help someone out there. Very well put. And knowing uh, your father at, at least two decades back sharing that it is pertinent today right giving that as a decision tool for all of us to say am i going above and beyond am i going out of the box extremely well put and it's a excellent conversation uh, Kripa, and i'm so happy for the, having this and thank you for your time i really really appreciate it thank you Gayatri. it was so nice talking to you i can't believe we spoke for 45 minutes it just flew by i really thank you for your time and the listeners time i totally enjoyed the conversation looking forward to more following more of your podcasts
We thank Siddharth for the music and Malavika for promoting the Software People stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.